So today, we're in part six of our sermon series on James, and today we're talking about all or nothing, and we're going to be in James 2, 8 through 36. Do you know what's funny? God. Do you know why he's funny? Because somebody said yesterday to me, one day you need to do a sermon on loving your neighbors. Okay? And the text just happens to be the text on loving your neighbor. Isn't that funny? Because God is already knows what needs to be talked about. He already knows everything. It's just amazing how God works when, uh, when, when he just shows up like that. This is the, the times that I, I love because I'm like, this is why I believe God is real. Because he is in all the little details. He, he, the stuff that, that we don't think matters and we would think that would just be troublesome to God, uh, he takes care of and he talks to us about it. So today, in our text, we're going to talk about loving one another and, and what it really means. So, uh, James uh, 2, 8 through 9 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. So, you see, we talked about favoritism last week, and, the, and now we're going to talk about the stakes in having favoritism. See, as we saw last week, favoritism is foolish and a worldly thing. See, even though it seems such like a small sin, and it doesn't seem to hurt anybody too much when you show favoritism, it is a sin. See, favoritism is the antithesis of love for the needy and for, the, for, and for our neighbors. Because if we're showing favoritism to other people, we're not showing love to our neighbors. We're not showing love to the people, these people that we don't like because they smile. We don't like the way they look. We don't like the choices they make. And we play favoritism to the people we like the choices that they make. We like the way they dress. We like the way they smell. We like the way they look. So we show favoritism to them. And God says, that's not the way we are supposed to live. And as James says in the verses, anyone who loves his neighbor does well and fulfills the royal law. See, but favoritism violates the king's law. You see, love your neighbor as yourself. Anyone who shows favoritism sins and is convicted by the law. When we show favoritism, we're convicted by the law. By the way, the first four points are all bad news. Just so you know. Loving your neighbor is of the royal law in two senses. 
There's two senses in the way loving your neighbor is a royal law. You see, firstly, it is the law of the kingdom and it's the law of King Jesus. He tells us to love our neighbors, as the text just says. That is the, the second most important commandment, to love God and then to love people as yourself. See, and secondly, love of neighbor is essentially an Old Testament law. See, God told Moses in Leviticus 19.18 to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is just repeating what God has already wrote. You see, the law of Moses often looks to the needs of the poor as it forbids unfair treatment of people. It forbids us to treat people differently. See, but Jesus takes love to an apex. He says, love your neighbor, and he shows us how to love our neighbors. See, love your neighbor is both what the king says and the way he lived and still lives. Because I don't know about you, but Jesus is still alive. And he is still kicking. And he is still working. He is still redeeming. Because he is our king who is alive. See? He's working by his incarnation. Jesus became our neighbor. When he was born, Jesus became our neighbor. See, by his sacrifice on the cross... and resurrection, he demonstrates the extent of his compassion for us. We're the poor and unworthy. We're the people that would be spit at in God's kingdom because we're unworthy to be in his presence. But Jesus loved us so much that he put on flesh and came down and lived for us. See, here's the thing about loving your neighbor and, and playing favoritism and all of that stuff. You're saying you deserve what Jesus did for you, but they don't. They don't. That's the problem with sin. It's the problem in our lives. When we obey this law, we, Ephesians 5, 2 says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So Ephesians 5, 2 is saying, we should be like Jesus. We should act like Jesus. We're never going to do this perfectly. Progress, not perfection. I think we need that sign right above that door. Progress, not perfection. See, you see, we, can, we, we don't need to live by the laws. We just need to love one another, people will say. We don't need the law. Jesus came. He fulfilled the law. Okay? I've said that before. I don't believe it now. Because here's the problem. If we forget the law, okay, we forget why Jesus came. See, we need to sympathize with that idea, though. Because we can think that. We can think, 
We don't need, why do we need the law? We've got Jesus. Why do we need the law? Jesus is everything. See, anyone who truly loves, though, does not need the law. This is what we say. We should never pit love and the law against each other. Jesus didn't. Because he told us to love God, didn't he? And we're going to get to that later, what loving God means. Okay? And love people. Jesus never said, by the way, actually, I will tell you this. Jesus upped the ante every single law that is in that Bible. He told you to do more. Not less. Old Testament tithe 10%. Jesus says, give it all to me. And I'll give you back what I want you to have. The command to love summarizes other laws. And the Ten Commandments incarnates the law of love. See, for example, the law teaches us to love our neighbor by respecting their property. First, we don't steal their possession. Second, we preserve our neighbor's property whenever able. The law says that we see a wandering donkey and recognize that it belongs to a neighbor. We should take it back to him. See, I don't think we see many donkeys roaming around Rome today. But, but we do see stray softballs, parked cars with the lights on. You see, the law says we should love our neighbors by caring for their property. If it is all possible, you see. So if we see a car parked with the lights on, we should knock on the door and say, excuse me, I think you've left your lights on. Not go, oh, they're going to have a dead battery in the morning. Sucker. Because that's basically what you're saying. I'm just saying it honestly. That's when you let drive and you see that. That's what you're saying. When you see a soccer ball because the kid kicked the soccer ball in your yard and you don't return it because I'm so sick of that soccer ball coming over to my fence and hitting my stuff. I'm squashing my flowers. I'm not going to return that soccer ball. You're not loving See, sometimes love and, and law seems in conflict, but it's not. For example, this is how it could seem in conflict. We all came to church today, didn't we? We're all here. So it, and it's Sunday, okay? So it's the Sabbath. We celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday, okay? So, so, so on the way... You passed a car that was stuck. You could say, well, the law says it's, it's broke down, it's stuck. I don't have to do anything. See, so, so this is where we've got a little, it seems like a little bit of contradiction. You see, because the principle of love says what? We should stop and we should help. Of course, though, we've got to remember, Jesus... Healed the sick on the Sabbath. Even though healing involves work, the gospel tells us to do the same. You see, the New Testament says, look, there's exceptions to resting on Sunday. 
And actually, and this is why I'll say, we've got Sabbath mixed up. Because Sabbath is supposed to be a rest to, to bring us closer to God. So if helping somebody on the side of the street is glorifying God, what is it doing in your heart? It's bringing you closer to God. So actually, there isn't no conflict there. See, that's just an excuse for us to drive by somebody. See, so even though it seems that love contradicts the law, but the Sabbath properly understood promotes love. See, we love God on the Sabbath by worshipping and resting in him. But Jesus' acts of love on the Sabbath also showing that we can give rest to others through deeds of mercy, just as God has given us rest. That means the Sabbath law promotes love for God and neighbor. Love and the law form a whole. It's together. You see, the law embodies the love command. We love our parents by honoring them. We love our spouse by remaining faithful. That's how you get 50 years. We love our neighbors by respecting their property, by telling the truth to them and about them, and by willing, and, and by willing their good rather than coveting their goods. That's how we're supposed to love our neighbors. See, so love your neighbor as yourself truly is a royal Lord standing at the core of God's law. It is, it is this royal law that forbids favoritism. You can't show favoritism if you love your neighbors. Because by the way, everybody's your neighbor. So we're going to pop back in time to last week's text. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For, a, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with, with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppose you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law. See, God is not little. 
and the, there are no little rules. There's no little rules. No little laws. See, with just a little touch of irony, James essentially says, you are doing very well if you can obey the royal law and love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show favoritism, James 1, uh, 2, 1 through 9 says, we break the law and are convicted as lawbreakers. See, favoritism violates the law, but more than that, the sin of favoritism convicts us as transgressors. We become transgressors. See, James doesn't say we, who, say who convicts us, but there are just two options here. Either the law itself convicts us, or it's God, the lawgiver himself. See, James is making this profound point. See, we think of favoritism as a little sin, don't we? You know, it's like that. It's a little white lie. There's no such thing as a little lie, by the way. Uh, do you know? You, everybody knows that, don't you? There's not a big lie and a little lie. A lie is a lie. There is no such thing as a little lie. You know, we've said that. How many people in this room have said, it's just a little lie? It's a lie. You can't put little in for the lie. It's not a big lie or a little lie. It's a lie. You see, you see, our inter, our in, if we break just one part of the law, we are accountable for and guilty of breaking the whole law. Just like you can't commit a little lie, you can't commit one sin, else you're breaking all the law. See, our institution, our intuition says obedience to the law is not all or nothing. Obedience seems to belong in the category of a partial success. You see, not all, the all or nothing category of life. We want to put it into the, mm, I'm keeping most of the law. Most of what I keep. Most of what I think we should keep. I'm keeping the big ones. I'm not murdering anybody. Actually, everybody in here has committed murder, by the way. According to Jesus. How many people... In this room, you don't have to lift your hands because everybody should lift their hand. And if you didn't, you'd be a liar. So I'm not asking you to lift your hands. How many people have hated somebody in their mind? See what I'm saying? According to Jesus, that's murder. I told you. God says if you actually put the knife in their heart and twist it when he wrote the murder thing. Jesus says... You just have to think it and you've done it. That's why I said Jesus isn't about abolishing the law. Jesus actually makes the law, puts higher standards on it. You can't even think that you hate somebody. According to Jesus, else you've committed the sin. See, 
Intuition, our intuition is wrong, though, for these two reasons. First, since disobedience violates the will of God, it, is, it also violates his character. For all his laws reflect his character. Everything God has written in the Bible, all laws, reflects how God believes. What he thinks, how he acts. So we shouldn't lie, should we? Because God tells the truth. We shouldn't cover because God is generous. See, we must make no image of God because every graven image misrepresents him. That's why I personally do not like paintings of Jesus. I don't like pictures of God. I don't like paintings of Jesus because here's the problem with that. Who knows in room what Jesus looked like. Nobody. So guess what you're making? According to the Bible, you're making a graven image of Jesus. That's why I don't like pictures of Jesus. I'm honest there. I will tell people, I do not like pictures of Jesus because we do not know exactly what Jesus looks like. And most people draw him like he would have never looked I mean, we have an idea what he might have looked like. And we know it's not like 90% of the pictures that have ever been drew of him or painted of him. That's my own personal thing. I don't think we should... I'm just, that, I'm just being honest here. You see, he has given two images, us two images of himself. Apart from Jesus. See, he gave us his image... By creating his people. We were created in his image. And we've been given his law, which displays his character. That's all we need to know about God. We reflect his image, and his law reflects his character. Because we definitely don't. See, second, if we break one law, we do indeed violate the whole law. Consider it. First, from the perspective of of the poor neighbor whom we slight in every favoritism, in in a way, favoritism violates the whole law because all commands are connected. See, in James 2 3, he says, Sit, they say to the poor man, Sit here on the floor. And that breaks many of the commandments. Just that. Let's talk, take a look. As we work backward through the Decalogue. Tenth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or his male servant. Or his female servant. Or his ox. Or his donkey. Or anything that is your neighbor's. See favoritism prefers the rich man. Because it covets the the riches that the rich man can bestow. Number ten. Number nine. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It bears false witness because it implies that a poor man has less worth than the rich man. See, the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. See, it robs the poor dignity they deserve. See, the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. To favor the rich is a kind of unfaithfulness. To the bond of our Christian fellowship. 
If you favor a certain people, you don't have to have sex to commit adultery. You are, you are, you are attracted to the person that you think will benefit you more. You shall not murder. It kills the spirit of the poor by demeaning them. Even in the church. See, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You see, favoritism dishonors the poor, but we must honor all who deserve honor, including one another. The fourth commandment, and I'm not going to read the whole fourth commandment. Shall I tell you why? Because it's the longest commandment out of all ten. I love that it's the longest one because it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If we show favoritism in the church, we defile our worship. Hence, we defile the Lord's day. We're doing good. We broke, we broke seven of the, the, the ten. Third commandment, you shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name. See, every, every believer is a representative of God. If we favor the rich over the poor, we misrepresent God. Because God came for the poor and needy. Jesus put on flesh for the poor and needy. I, I'm just telling you, even if you had a million dollars in cash, you're the poor and needy when it comes to Jesus. See, and the first and second commandments shall no, have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them to serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God equity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to all to love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments you see God this command all who all disobedience is a kind of denial of God's lordship when we disobey all of the commandments we're saying we don't believe you God we're going to do it our way verse 11 for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has has become guilty of it all for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. See, what is total obedience? That is James' point when he says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. So, that is, if someone violates just one law, he is accountable for the whole of the law. Because God gives the whole. If the 
if the very, very God of the universe says, do not murder, then deliberately murderous thoughts, words, or deeds violate not only his will, they violate his person. His role as Lord of Lords as well in the sense. You see, obedience, obedience to God is all or nothing. Furthermore, any and all mistreatment of a neighbor breaks all laws of neighbor, for neighbors, since the law, all laws aim at their good. By the way, that's whether they're a Christian or not. Still, some beginners wants to place law-keeping in this, in this partial ca- category. We can keep some of the law, not all of it. See, after all, you know, I skip breakfast a lot on Sunday. I didn't today, but I do. But to say that, it's better to eat a little breakfast than none at all. Because I get, I get hang, hangry when I, when I don't eat. So to eat a little bit is better than not to eat any more at, at all. So I try to eat something small at least. Uh, but yeah, it's better to eat something small. When you was a child, how many people did this? Hey, your mum told you, clean your room. Well, when she walked in, it looked clean until you opened the closet. A partially cleaned room, really. Uh, bad, there was stuff hanging out the bed because you just went... <laughs> My wife's guilty over there. She, she, she's just looking at her mom. She knows, she knows that's how she cleaned her room. And uh, you see, we, we tell ourselves that partial obedience is better than none, don't we? We say, well, we obey most of the time. That's better than if we don't obey at all. You know, uh, I, that law that God gave me, but I'm going to, I just, I just, I'm okay with just obeying some of the time or, oh, I don't, I don't like that law, so I'm not going to listen to that, what God says about that. See, the whole Bible is either true or it's all lies. I, I, I'll say that till the day I die. The whole Bible is true or the whole be burned. Because it's false. There's no in-between. For There's no... Ah, well, that might be true, but this might be true. Or none of it's true. There's no fine line. It's, it, it, it's all or nothing when it comes to the Word of God. See? So we tell ourselves par- partial obedience is better than none. In a sense, you see, a sincere but failed attempt at obedience. If we sincerely try to obey the is better than no attempt at all. But James wants to pursue this another point. He wants to say, uh, he uses examples, murder and adultery. The central moral commands, James 2.11, exposes the danger in the mindset that is content with partial obedience. There is a problem. If people pick and choose what they obey, then they are still very much their own God. If we pick and choose what we want to believe, we become God. All commands are united by this principle. God gave them. If we say, I will follow the law about murder, but will not follow the law about adultery, then we are saying we will obey laws that we judge 
We judge as people to be sound. Mm, it, I, I understand. I better not stab somebody, but it's okay to cheat on my wife. That's what you, you, they, they, it's saying. See? So this approach forgets that God gave every law and it enthrones the law. See, in, in turn, though, if we disobey any law, we disobey God. We are not simply disobeying His law. We're not simply, dis- we are rejecting Him as our Lord and Savior. You see, we're saying, God, we don't need you to be our Lord and our lawgiver. Because that's what he is. If we pick and choose among the commands, we never really obey God himself. See, if we follow only the laws we like, if we obey only the laws that we find agreeable, we make ourselves the final arbitrator of truth. See, in effect, we consult with God and possibly gain value, valuable pointers from Him. A lot of Christians do this. We, we get our valuable pointers from Him, but we don't follow His command. We ask Him, hey God, what do you think? We pray and we say, hey God, what do you think I should do with this? Do you think I should be sleeping with my girlfriend or not? He says no. The Bible says no. But I say, mm, well, that's a gray area. I'm going to do it anyway. Well, what's he going to do? God forgives everything, doesn't he? So it's okay. It's okay. I'll tell you, if you do that, just remember that all sins are forgiven as long as you repent of them. Okay? So if you have uh, sleeping with your girlfriend or, or in a, 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 some sort of uh, sin that you shouldn't be, remember to, to say... To ask God for forgiveness every time you do it. Because every time you do it, you need forgiveness. Not just the once. You see, we have a tendency. The more good deeds and the larger the pile we do, the more God is pleased. But the problem is, according to the Bible, our good deeds are like filthy rags. But as James sees it, obedience is more like a sheet of glass. You can either obey him, or you can break one law and take a brick and throw it through the glass. Because once the glass is shattered, once you break one law. See, we do pick and choose among God's commandments. Some would never kill, but cheerfully commit fornication or adultery. We wouldn't have a problem with that. We won't, we won't have a problem with what we watch on TV. We won't have a problem with how we act when we're not at church. But whether physical murder or not, James says, James observes other forms of murder. Favoritism is murder of the poor. It despises the poor and that is a form of hate and murder. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21 through 26, Jesus raises the bar. James also mentions judgment of others and condemnation as a kind of verbal murder. We call this a character assassination. See, everybody in here has probably at some point in their life had their character assassinated. People have made up things about you. There might be some truth in it, but there's not a whole truth in it. 
and they start spreading stuff about you and it slanders your name. It slanders the character. That's what happens. See, reform thinkers have rightly stressed the sovereignty of God this way. It has two sides. Firstly, his sovereignty over history, his rule over human events, and secondly, his moral sovereignty, his right to govern human behavior as he chooses because he created us. See, important as God's sovereign rule is, James would not have us neglect his moral reign. See, James immersed himself in the ethical teaching of the Lord Jesus. He knows disciples do not choose among God's commandments like we choose at the all-you-can-eat moral buffet. See, that's how we choose. We go to an all-you-can-eat, hey, I want a piece, I'll take a piece of this law and a piece of this law, but I'm not going to take that law because I don't want follow that law. I'm just going to take the laws that I like. And then I'm going to stress it. And this is the worst thing we do. This is another law breaking. We stress the laws that we think are important on people that are breaking the other laws that, we, 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 that they don't think are important. You see, we get it confused. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. He goes on to say, so speak and so act as those who are, be, are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy. To one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, there is judgment and mercy. James heightens the issue by reminding his readers that they will be judged by the law that gives freedom. See, furthermore, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. We should speak and act accordingly, James James 2, 12 through 13 says. And this phrase, speak and act, reminds us of the call to be doers of the word. You see, that's the beauty about books of the Bible, is they just build upon themselves as they go on. You see, we should be doers of the word. You see, judgment is certain and will occur on that basis. See, judgment is near, James 5, 8 says. You also, you all, we, we also be, we need to be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. See, the Lord will be our judge. Why? Above all, because God gave the law. To break the law is to contradict God's will. Moreover, when we break the law, we fail to act like his children. See, we should be looking more like his children every single day. See, we neither walk in his ways nor imitate him. Yet that's what the Bible says. That is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Is to walk in his ways. See, this is tragic because the law gives freedom. We think the law binds us, but it doesn't. It gives us freedom. You see, many regard the law as a a restriction since it forbids us to doing whatever that we please. 
But there is free, a freedom that enslaves us. We're free to take cocaine. We can go snort a line of cocaine right now, except it's illegal, if it's free to do it, okay? But what does cocaine do to you? It enslaves you because you're looking for that high again. You're looking to get high again, the first high you had. See, it, it turns its, its, its users into addicts. And they become addicted. So they're under the law of cocaine. You can be under the law of alcohol. You pick it. Sadly, sadly, you can be in the the law of family. You see, we can we can make good things that God gave us into worship. We can take. God's creation and start to worship that instead of the one who created it. See, we may be divorced a spouse, but what does divorce do? It often binds people to loneliness and poverty. You see, we may be free to experiment sexually, but such freedom enslaves us to a life of lust and shallow broken relationships. I know people that, 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 that are like this. You know, they have broken, shallow relationships because they just move on to one, a different person, a different person, a different person, thinking the person's going to make them happy, or the next drink's going to make them happy, or the next shot of cocaine, uh, heroin, or a snort of cocaine, or their crack pipe's going to make them happy. But it never does. But they're laws too. See, but and beyond these temporal troubles, sin leads to judgment. When James first mentions mercy in verse 2.13, he hints that he he still has a mindset, a mind, sins against the poor who need mercy. But if we favor the rich, we extend no mercy to the poor. But next, James mentions the need to feed and clothe the poor. All who claim to believe must show mercy or they will face judgment, verses 14 through 17. See, the sting, this stings. This stings because I can't do this perfectly. So this text you're reading and you're studying the first part and you're like, damn, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. You see, it stings. The depth of these demands could drive disciples to despair. See, that's why you've got to read the whole text, not just part of the text. That's why I said so many people, they take the pretty verses out and read them, but don't read the whole text. They don't put the text in context. And you need to render complete obedience, James declares, or you render nothing. That's what he's saying. Render complete obedience or you're rendering nothing. So what shall we say? We follow the logic. Believers must obey God's law because they are God's laws. See, but when James says judgment without mercy will will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, the gospel seems to be missing. Where's the gospel in this text? You see, the sovereign... 
commands that we show mercy, but where is his mercy? See, James is ready with this answer. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a short, undeveloped burst of the gospel. See, James will talk more of the gospel when we get to chapter 4. But mercy triumphs over judgment has been understood two ways. It may refer to human mercy. That is, disciples will act in mercy after all, so that human mercy will win the day. But this seems unlikely. You see, James doesn't really seem very optimistic about human goodness. He doesn't think we can do this, by the way. I know we can't. See, indeed, indeed, James one through James two one through seven shows that we fail the test of true religion. We talked about that last week. How we fail the test. See, the second explanation of this mercy triumphs over judgment asserts that it is God's mercy. See, though James has not not been thinking of mercy, it seems that he, is simply, he simply cannot end by declaring judgment without giving us mercy. He needs to, he, he, there is judgment, but hold on a minute. I'm going to tell you, there is mercy. There is mercy. He does not explain at this moment how mercy triumphs over judgment. But he is speaking to believers. Remember that. If you're a believer... He was speaking to you. So they have an idea of how they've been saved. He wasn't speaking to people that didn't know the gospel. He wrote this to believing Jewish people that had put their faith in Christ Jesus. Who knew that Christ Jesus has forgiven them from their sins. So first of all, we need to recognize our sins and repent of them. Grieving over them and intending by God's grace to abandoning them. See, repent actually means to turn away. So the idea of repentance isn't because God needs to hear us talk to him about what we've done wrong. He already knows what we've done wrong. He wants you to tell him what you've done wrong so you know what you've done wrong and you can ask him to help turn you away from making the stupid decision over and over again. And you might need to repent over and over again for the same sin. But it's important that we actually repent of what we have failed in. James says in chapter 4, verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That's what repentance is. It's falling on your knees, asking him for forgiveness. And, and, and this is something we need to do every day. I don't know about you, but I can mess up every day more than once. More than once. And some of them are big. Some of them are small. But I need God's grace and mercy. And I know how to get it. It's to tell him that I'm sorry. I don't want to do this anymore. 
confess to him and ask him to forgive me. And secondly, we turn to Jesus as he is offered in the gospel, knowing that he was delivered, delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, Romans 4.25. See, believers fail yet by their faith in the Redeemer. God's mercy to his children triumphs over the judgment we deserve. In Christ, triumphs. through Christ, we are united to the triune God. The one who demands mercy shows mercy for his disciples. See, God's mercy is always his last and final word. So we need to take mercy home. See, Scripture teaches us to ask that, to ask that we need to ask for mercy. It commands us to pray for forgiveness every day. Since unless we are comatose, we sin every single day. But it can be difficult to repent, you see. God's mercy does not depend on our ability to request it properly. We don't even have to do this right. We just have to do it. See, even so, we will be spiritually healthier if we know how correctly to face our sin. Indeed, we, we have three ways to respond. Four ways, actually. Anyway, we can excuse our sin, especially by blaming others. We've all done this. Don't lie, because that's a sin. If we get angry... I know this, so I know everybody else has done it, because I've done it. We say someone provoked us to anger. So it's okay. If we fail, someone tempted us. We even blame God for our sins. But James said, chapter 1, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God does not tempt anyone. See, we can deny our sin. We redefine our actions so they sound better. You know the scene. People arguing and someone says, the two people arguing and somebody says, stop bickering. And they both turn around. We're not arguing. We're having an animated discussion. (laughs) Unrepentant people never shout. They just make their points in a forceful way. They don't steal, they borrow things indefinitely without permission. If anyone points out their sin, that person, that person is what? Judgmental. And their standards are too high. You're, ha- you t- you're, you're just got too high standards. It's okay. I'm just borrowing it. We can succumb to our shame. This is a sad one. We can collapse in despair, guilt, and self-recrimination. See, we can give up and fall deeper into sin, thinking effort is futile. Or we can resolve to try harder. See, I know a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of uh, addicts that have tried to quit because they're trying harder to quit. And everyone who's successful can tell me, Dave, trying harder, does it work? Doesn't work, does it? 
We, we, you see, we stir ourselves with grim resolve and vows of self-reformation. We say, I'm not going to do it again. Tomorrow, I'm going to just give it my all. And I'm going to try harder. And guess what? Weeks later, we fail. We feel shame. And it starts all over again. Or we can take the sin to our God. And we can plead for mercy. The guilt-stricken man asks, Will God forgive when I commit the same sin yet again? See, we ask this, God, I keep committing the same sin over and again. How many times can you forgive me? And Jesus says, Yes, I will forgive you over and over again. I already did. I paid the price for your stupidity on the cross. Come to me. Get closer to me. If you draw close to God, if you, I find when I, the closer I am to God, the less I do stupid stuff. I think everybody would find that out too. The more I'm in the Word, the more I read my devotionals, the more I'm talking to God, the less I'm sinning. Because it's hard to sin while you're reading your Bible and talking to God. See, but, but we have, we have this, this thing that we, we, what we do, we play a game. We play a game, don't we? We play a game with God because we, we, we think, oh, if I don't do that, I can, let's do this. Or I'm going to just blow up and it's okay because, nah, God's not going to really. He's already forgiven me anyway. And we play this games with ourselves that everything's acceptable and it's okay to act how we want. But we can ask for forgiveness on a daily basis. Shall I tell you how? Because we can look at the Lord's Prayer. And we're supposed to ask for our daily bread. We can ask for our daily repentance too and our daily forgiveness every single day. I think it's a good practice to get up and say, Hey God, wow, I need forgiveness. I know I need forgiveness. Please give it to me. And he's already answered you. He's already answered you. So James 2 does sting. The complacent believer with several sharp warnings about sin. But first, even a small, common, all but invisible sin, such as favoritism, has large consequences. See, by it, we will fail the test of true religion. And secondly, we have not, no right to pick and choose among God's commandments. It's all or nothing. See, if we reject a command because it is unpalatable to, to us, we have rejected the Lord that gave that law. And that is a serious matter. Still, God's grace is greater than our sin. The gospel goes to sinners, to the unworthy, to the poor in spirit. The Lord is pleased when we obey him. Yet for all who repent and believe, he loves and forgives even when we fail. But anyone who says we should abandon the law and says they're a Christian, they haven't read their Bible. 
Because this is how God wants us to live our lives. Are we going to do it perfect? No. I'm going to say this every week. Progress, not perfection. Progress, not perfection. We will fail. But we know, if you're a Christian, you know where to turn when you do. You know who to turn to. And his name is Jesus. So next week, read James uh, 2, 14 through 19 and get ready for next week's sermon on a faith that works. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that... uh, We thank you for all that you do for us and all that you give us. You are an amazing God. A God that has... uh, watched over us, and yes, we have the law, God, and yes, we are supposed to live as a reflection of Jesus, and we mess this up every single day. And I'm so glad for your grace and your mercy that washes us clean. I just pray that we can learn to turn to you when we sin, and we can ask for the forgiveness that you've already given us. Because you are an amazing God who loves us even when we commit the same sins over and over again. Even though we have trouble to love our neighbors, teach us how to do it properly, God, as only you can. Help us to respect all people. Not the people that believe like us, look like us, speak like us, but all people, God, from all backgrounds. Just as Jesus loved, help us to love like Jesus. Help us to show mercy and grace like you have shown us. Because we are the poor sinner, God. And you showed that mercy and grace to us and we didn't deserve it. It doesn't mean that neighbor deserves grace or mercy. Or that person in your life deserves grace and mercy. But if you say you believe in Jesus, Jesus says they deserve it. They are his creation. They are made in him in his image. Help us to love them. Help us to be people who love like Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.